This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Marnia Lazarek, who is the author of Foucault's Orient, The Conundrum of Cultural Difference from Tunisia to Japan, a book that was published in 2017 by Bericam Books. Hello, Marnia. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so... We like to just talk about this book in this new books network, um, but perhaps like, can you start with who you are, uh, and maybe in conjunction with the question of how this book project came to to be in your life? Okay. Yeah, um, I'm a sociologist, you know, by training. Um, I got my PhD uh, here in New York City from New York University, a private institution. Um, I became interested in um, historical sociology as well as uh, gender relations. Uh, So even though I have taught, you know, a variety of courses, you know, one very common course I have taught, frequent course was, you know, international development. Uh, because that got me into the issue of um, a global uh, global understanding of uh, why is it that some nations you know have uh, become industrialized and others you know have, are still having difficulties you know doing so. Um, so uh, because I also have a, an abiding interest in uh, theory and also taught courses um, on theory classical as well as contemporary, I became interested in Foucault uh, because, as you know, uh, for a long time, uh, it, it continues today. You know, he was the rage, you know, everywhere, uh, not only, you know, in the U.S., but everywhere. And certainly, I went along. And so um, in one of my theory courses, I had to teach about Foucault. And um, I became interested in the way in which he opened up um, the uh, the book, you know, the order of 
things, uh, shows. And at first, it didn't bother me. And then as I walked the course again and again, I started stumbling on it. Why on earth is he starting with this Chinese encyclopedia? Not only that, but he devotes, you know, quite you know some space to um, explaining uh, its meaning. Not only that, but he also said, in fact, he got his inspiration for the book from the Chinese encyclopedia. It seemed like I was the only one who was, you know, intrigued, you know, by this um, quotation. And because when I looked it up, you know, I saw people say, "Isn't that the wonderful quotation that sets?" you know, for the, the history really of uh, uh, the idea of science in the West, and it kept bothering me. And I decided I have to look into it. So I, you know, I, and I started running into uh, Chinese scholars uh, who actually had the problem with it, and, and then I decided to look into the way in which he wrote it. And if you actually look at it carefully, he blurs uh, the fiction and the reality. Stretches of time, stretches of time, he's talking about it as if it were real. And then he interjects, you know, the name of Borges. Borges did this to us. And then he goes on, uses it again as real, and counterposes it uh, to uh, the French, you know, fictitious work of Rabelais, uh, Gantua. And, and then, to my surprise, that's the starting point. And they lack the table. But I understand how that fictitious, you know, bizarre enumeration of the encyclopedia held together. Whereas if you read about uh, Pantagruel and all these horrible things, you know, like, you know, hemorrhoids and the spiders, uh, they were all heterogeneous objects, but they were held together. Where they held together by his mouth. And I said, come on now, how could the mouth be the table? And so that was the beginning of telling us essentially uh, the fundamental difference uh, between uh, the Occident and the Orient. So then, of course, I had to teach about the history of uh, uh, madness. And then um, I realized that the 19... The 1961 edition had a, a quotation uh, that put a frame around my uh, conundrum, if you will, with the issue of the Chinese encyclopedia. There, in very stark terms, he's telling us there is a universal reason, which essentially is, is Western, there is this limit to the universal reason. And you wonder why would the universal reason has, have a limit? And what is the limit? Uh, the limit is this oriental reason, the one that produced the Chinese encyclopedia, which is a fictitious text. Yeah, that's really interesting starting point because it seems like Borges is trying to demonstrate a kind of limitation of reason through the fictitious re like recreation of this Chinese encyclopedia. And as Asian, it, it does look convincing, right? That it, it does look like this is sort of the categorization that represents 
a certain encyclopedic thinking that categorizes things in such a way that we can somehow, you know, have comprehend everything in the universe through this categorization, but it shows the limit of the endeavor. Um, but I wonder, like, Foucault and uh, Borges are coming from, like, a little bit different angle to the same question. It just seems like... Um, Borges, for instance, seem to be much more, you know, interested in how, yeah, do, do you have some, like, um, I, I guess, input from your side about the sort of comparative sure. differences and yeah. sameness yeah. between I Borges think, and Foucault? I think it, it is well known that mm-hmm. Borges made fun of us academics, our, you know, you know, self-importance, you know, and quotations on top of quotations. So he said, well, look, uh, there is this man, Dr. Franz Kuhn, and actually he was a real character, um, but, you know, uh, he had not, uh, he had written, you know, celestial, the celestial emporium of um, uh, benevolent knowledge, but he didn't write in the Chinese encyclopedia. So he attributed the Chinese encyclopedia, which is the figment of Borges' own imagination, real character uh, called, you know, Franz Kuhn, for what purpose? To show us that all taxonomies, all classifications are arbitrary. And he goes on from there to show us how uh, the Bibliographic Institute of Brussels, uh, uh, which classifies books, the ones we go to the library to read, the classification itself is bizarre. And he shows us the bizarreness you know, of the classification. So that's the conclusion. All taxonomies are actually arbitrary. That's the conclusion that uh, Foucault just swipes to the side and takes this Chinese encyclopedia out of the context that Borges gave it and makes it into the absolute representation of Oriental thought as a limit experience. Uh, so this is different. This is quite different. This is what we don't know about Borges. Borges was making fun of all of us, creating these things. And actually, he goes on to tell us that there is this character, John Wilkins, uh, 16th, 17th century, exactly the, cent- the centuries that Foucault was writing about, who had, you know, he wanted to create a, a universal language, uh, one that you could you know you could learn in a few days, um, and then he goes on. But he divided the universe you know, into into categories and the categories into differences and the differences into into species, and, you know. So he goes on and on. But Wilkins was a real character, and however, uh, Foucault does not mention him, and you know. So there is a woman, um, who, uh, Sidonie Klaus, who argues, I, I don't want to get into the controversy because I didn't do research, but who argues that uh, Foucault actually willingly exclu- excluded Wilkins because it perturbed the neatness of his, of his view in the the things that you have the West and then you have the East and there's rationality in the West and you have this, you know, limit, you know, to rationality in the East. So, so, so I think 
And because Foucault does not usually give us uh, footnotes and references, uh, if you haven't read the piece by Borges, you don't even know whether this encyclopedia you know, existed or not, or whether it existed and, and, and Borges you know, made the fictitious you know, thing out of it. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe that ties me to this question that I have uh, inherently for the uh, Foucault studies. So, I mean, this tension between Borges and Foucault really represents this sort of like a poet showing us the limit of philosophy and philosophical reasoning to categorize everything neatly into this framework of thinking. Uh, but then Foucault seemed to be using that concept to say this is a limit concept to the Western universalizing reason. But isn't it another taxonomy that somehow um, put things in a neat box? Or would you disagree by saying that maybe this limit concept is much more explosive and far-reaching implications? Um, You know, the concept of limit experience, as you know, know, comes from surrealism, uh, where, you know, the authors like Bapai and, and, and others, you know, wanted to push the envelopes, the limit, where the individual would come close to, you know, the, 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 you know, the limit is really death, right? <laughs> you know, go beyond, you know, uh, the world, you know, of, you know, everyday life that you know that you're familiar with and get into something else. Um, and so it was, I don't think Foucault had an ulterior reason except he wanted to show this fundamental divide uh, between um, the universal or universalizing Western reason and and the East that has a thought uh, that cannot be fathomed. And perhaps he adds someday we should do the history of this other thought. Uh, But as a a J- Japanese scholar said to me, I think uh, his name was uh, Yasuo Kobayashi. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Oh, you, okay. Yeah. Right. He said, you know, a universal reason doesn't have a limit. So when Foucault posits a universal reason and says, and says there's a limit to it, um, he's stopping you know, the universal scope of reason. He's not looking at this limit represented by um, the oriental reason. Uh, He's not stopping and saying, but this is part of the universal reason because there is no reason why the universal, the universe itself would be confined to the West. This is ridiculous. And today, as you know, we have this uh, sort of revolution in, in thinking where we were trying to be as inclusive as possible. We were trying to see, you know, how, you know, philosophies, you know, from the non-West you know, actually had some common elements with philosophies in the West. And, and if you want to look at it, actually, the West borrowed some elements from the philosophies of the <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. the German Enlightenment that was interested in Confucius. Because uh, they realized that Confucius actually had elements uh, of the Enlightenment, which they in Germany were looking for and looking to develop. Uh, so I'm afraid um, 
uh, without diminishing is essentially the importance, you know, from the importance of Foucault. I mean, he fumbled this, you know, because his life, life's work is to capture the essence and the uniqueness of the West and the Western culture. Uh, he does it critically, and this is one confounding element, you know, for his readers, like, oh, he's a critic of the West. But he says specifically, I'm not a critic in order to, um, you know, destroy it, but I'm a critic to understand how it was constituted, period. He hasn't rejected it. He, he has actually endorsed its values. And so this, in essence, uh, stumbles against, you know, his aura of being left philosopher, because people associate him with the left. As such, you know, you know, he's saying, you know, this very revolutionary and fantastic things that can help. Yes, he has some absolutely very, very uh, inspiring concepts. However, um, you know, and he did things that are associated with the left, which is demonstrating, you know, on behalf of immigrants, you know, on behalf of uh, Solidarnos, you know, in Poland, um, you know, doing work, you know, with the prisoners in France. Actually, it was his companion, De Ferro, was doing it. He simply lent his name to it. Uh, That's what De Ferro told me. Uh, so, uh, so he has this aura around him, but when you start digging, you realize that he actually could not comprehend the diversity of the world, even though he was the one who said he wanted to do a reportage d'idée uh, because he felt that the most exciting ideas were occurring elsewhere. And he wanted to go and, you know, study them. And he put together a team, you know, of scholars and journalists to do that. And he went to, to, to Iran uh, to do a reportage on the Iranian revolution. Uh, but he always comes back uh, to his you know, fulcrum, which is the specificity of um, Western culture. And in this sense, uh, in my view, he's closer to Weber, whose life's work was to show the uniqueness of the West uh, than to, to anybody else. Right. Is it sort of like uniqueness in relation to the rest of the world to show it as a particular unique kind of culture in this global context? Or is it a little bit more like anti-left putting the Western culture into the pedestal. So the conundrum with this concept of the Orient and limit concept that it seems like Foucault is capable of providing us the theoretical foundation for doing multicultural, cross-cultural, both philosophy and sociology and anthropology. To me, that it seems to provide us at least some sort of like a theoretical foundation for doing, paying attention to the non-West. But... When you read your book and see the account of his experience in Tunisia or Iran and Japan, we all end with a little bit of um, um, anticlimax feeling it that eventually he comes back, as, as you say, eventually comes back to the West and uh, talk about specificity of the Western culture. Um, so it is a conundrum. And I'm, I'm wondering what your take on this. Yeah. I think that's, description that's of the very, West. Yeah, you're posing a very 
uh, important question. And that's the thing that one has to navigate. This is why in the introduction I say, look, this is not a takedown of Foucault. This is not a negative critique of Foucault. This is simply opening a space for a productive discussion of areas that have been put left in the shadow. Uh, and so, um, <clears throat> yes, um, you know, the development of countries, some countries, you know, is, is, you know, can be, you know, common to others and it can be unique. Yes, uh, there could be a unique um, um, constellation of uh, circumstances that allowed some countries to hit upon uh, certain, you know, developments, you know, that led them to become industrialized and, and, and others not. And it's inevitable that one has to ask oneself what was the role of imperialism and, you know, colonialism um, giving a boost uh, to what, you know, you know, the West sees as its, you know, uniqueness and being a break on the development of, of, of others, not to verify colonialism and see it, you know, as the, the, the cause of, of everything. I'm not saying that, but just the phenomenon itself, you know, the way it developed. So that's a legitimate question, right? But that's different from writing books and doing analysis that time and again take the West as the standard for understanding difference without entering the complexity of that difference. And this is why, to me, um, Foucault's experience of Japan is so crucial, and few people talk about it. How he responds uh, to the um, people who ask him questions, the scholars in, in Japan, uh, how he responds to the people who came to listen to his lectures. And some of them asked him very, very crucial question, questions. Do you think um, that we have something to offer, that the East has something to offer to the crisis that exists in the West? And he's, you know, of course, he acknowledges that there is a crisis in the West. Crisis of thought, and uh, but what does he attribute its origin to? The end of empire, the end of colonialism, and for the French, it's the, <laughs> it's the loss of Algeria. Question: <laughs> I mean, this is so heartrending. At the same time, when he talks about the reportage de day and the ideas brewing elsewhere in the world, you know, you know he. He tells us that there's, there's some knowledge um, that is subjugated. You know, this is in his lectures at the Collège de France, subjugated knowledges. And these this knowledges become marginal and continue to be marginalized. And the standard, you know, for keeping their marginalization is always to accuse them of not being scientific. So, okay, you could say, oh, my God, this is great, because this is true. But then this is you know, counterbalanced by the essential thing, which is, you know, the West is the standard. Even when he had to, when he was asked about madness, because that's his, his specialty, right? 
in Japan, or he asked. So he said, well, madness in Japan, uh, then he says the representations of madness. So we're no longer talking about madness, but representation of madness. So in Japan, madness is represented, you know, as the sacred. Whereas in the West, there you go. He could never enter, you know, the complexity of the difference that he's talking about. He had always to counterpose it the reality of Western culture, whereas in the West it is um, uh, represented as truth, truth telling. Of course, come on, you know, you know, a madman may be represented as sacred, but it is the sacred. What is the sacred? It is the source of the truth <laughs> in a not sacred world. So that that cause actually. You know, a few lone uh, Frenchmen like uh, Thierry Marchès and uh, François Julien, and to say, well, well, the difference is really so thin that there is no difference. It is an indifference. <laughs> mm, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is what. So, one has to see both Foucaults, the Foucault who comes up with this wonderful concept. Uh, subjugated knowledge. We know subjugated knowledge. So we, it's not. He was the first, not the first one to say it. You know, but you know the way he says it. Who comes about? You know, you know uh, the crisis of the West. But then the Foucault says, you know, you know, the West is the standard for understanding everything. So he cannot, he cannot conceive of a culture in its own terms. And, and, and of course, this is where your question is important. You brought up the issue of anthropology. Does it give us a, um, an anthropology, a theory that will help us to, bring, to, to build you know, an anthropology that does not eliminate difference? Uh, but the fact is, to do that kind of work, you have to accept uh, humanism. And he rejected anthropology he said it's actually uh, in a deep sleep it's it's a, it's a, it's it's an, an anthropological sleep you know um, and and because he rejected you know the fundamental you know definition of anthropology by a Kant Kant and he was a translator uh, of uh, anthropology from the pragmatic standpoint uh, which uh, uh, Kant had taught as a course for many, many years, and towards the end of his life, he put those notes together and published the text. And even then, instead of going after some very important element in Kant, like his fundamental racism, he goes after, you know, you know human nature. He rejects it because, of, because it has a, um, an, a, a, an empirical transcendental a priori. It, it, it's, uh, it, it, it posits the existence of a human nature and then proceeds you know, to study the manifestations of that human nature empirically. So, and in fact, there is no such thing as human nature because for Foucault, man is dead. Study, study is something that's dead. So what you can study is language. So even his interpretation of Kant's anthropology was reductive. He introduced introduce the specificity of human beings to language, not 
you know, because human nature is universal, right? We all it. <laughs> so, so it's his obsession with rejection of anything that's universal, but at the same time, positing that Western rationality is universal. So that's the, the, the inner contradiction, uh, which people do not, you know, really uh, dwell on or even raise. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm always... Um, so, I mean, the, the, the tension even comes from the title of your book, The Foucault's Orient. You know, the, in, in the context of Asian studies, like the name that you mentioned, Francois Julien, that follows this sort of like a Fouconian um, tradition, a civilly criticized not being attentive to the, what's actually happening uh, in, in, in the East. Um, so Orientalism is, is usually a really negative charge term. But are you saying that it's, it's the perfect description of what Foucault was actually doing as theoretical thinker in Tunisia and Iran and, and Japan? Is that the message that you are? The, the message is not that mm-hmm. uh, Foucault was an Orientalist uh, because he had no personal you know, investment you know, you know, in bringing down you know, you know, Oriental cultures. Yeah, no, no. It's not, it's not the kind of Orientalism that uh, Said, you know, talked about. He hasn't written a book on this. He has not written a book on any culture. You know, his books were all on Western culture. So, for from my perspective, the Orient, because he's the one who said there's a divide between the Occident, l'Occident et l'Orient. I didn't put it, you know, I didn't, you know, gave him the label he used it so 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 his his commitment is to his philosophical theoretical orientation um which is his you know a rejection of a cosmopolitan uh uh humanist you know anthropology course that has to do with his you know objection you know and you know after being a member of the communist party for a couple of years you know he rejected marx so he was rejecting everything that's universal you know because you know look western reason you know cannot you know you know lost you know uh interest and faith in in its progress you know it's in a state of crisis and the crisis you know shows us you know it's very well demonstrated by the collapse of imperialism. So as long as imperialism was, was in, in place, there was a crisis. When it collapses, there, there's a crisis. So it means, you know, virtually it means that the, 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 the existence, the confidence in the universality of the West, you know, was predicated on the existence of the empire. Um, so, um, so the He's not an Orientalist in, in, the, in the sense that we define Orientalism, but the Orient as a reality, as a phenomenon, as an idea, posed a problem for his philosophical theoretical system. Orient. It was really interesting to see that his position in like his attitude or the ways in which he interact with with the experience in Tunisia and Iran and Japan are quite different from each other. It seems 
in Tunisia, he was just kind of visiting, almost like a touristy visiting and observing the phenomena from outside. But then in Iran, he was a lot more theoretically engaged, but it was very intellectual work. But then in Japan, he seemed to be kind of sort of like emotionally taken in as... Totally, totally. Yeah. And that's, that's a very important um, a remark, you know, that you're making. Uh, his, this is why I, I, I foreground the concept of experience, which, which meant a lot to him, right? So what was his experience in Tunisia, in Iran, in Japan? And he, he really, the only place where he lived a longer period of time is really Tunisia. But as you said, you know, Tunisia is the French assimilated Orient. Uh, he was in another province of France that I just crossed. So he spoke only French. He lived in this beautiful area, overlooking the Mediterranean called Sidi Boussaïd. Uh, he only spoke to students who spoke French. He didn't know one word of Arabic. And the the student who rebelled against the state was one, Benjanet, you know, who only spoke Arabic because he was a graduate of the Arabic speaking, you know, very famous Zituna University. And the poor guy had been, you know, um, condemned to 20 some years, you know, opposition to the state. And so at Tunisia, and then, and then he was also you know, a guest, as he said, because, you know, <clears throat> the, the Tunisian government was absolutely ecstatic, you know, to have Hugo, you know, teaching as a guest faculty um, at the University of, of Tunis. And even though he helped, you know, the student by smuggling, you know, uh, you know, you know, giving, you know, smuggling them, you know, carrying them, you know, burying typewriters, you know, and leaflets in, in his house, and again, this is it. You know, this is what confuses people. That's a left thing, right? <laughs> right, exactly, but, yeah. But then he wouldn't say anything against the state. He said that he knew. I mean, he knew that nothing could happen to him because, because of his name and because Bourguiba was so happy to have him, so happy that he sent him a box of dates. But in the meantime, he was putting down the student revolt for their, you know, half-baked uh, Marxism. Uh, was not, you know, scientific Marxism. It was Sino-Castrism. My gosh, you know, and you are the one who wanted the, to look at, you know, these, you know, simmering ideas. Why couldn't you see that behind the mask of Marxism was simmering idea? And this is what one of his students, Ahmed Hasnawi, told him. He said, look, you have to understand when students here want to be Marxist now with Trotskyists, I mean, the whole spectrum is not really a doctrine, a doctrine as a way of life. They simply want to se dépendre, se dépendre, which is a word that he likes very much, to be, you know, before the state, to be other than what the state thinks they are, just Tunisians. We are not that. We are, you know, these people who are opposing you. So it didn't matter whether the, the Marxism was scientific or not, but was the Marxism of the French students really scientific? Then, you know, you, you stumble on this and say, oh my gosh, come on, Foucault. You right, know? right, exactly. Yeah, it has a sense of like, 
really anticlimactic the maldigestion of yeah it's it's very different from what you imagine from reading this text no when sure. you start digging you say oh my gosh yeah. actually the fact of me you know we have to be careful not to uh, put too much stock in interviews um because interviews are less guarded than you know the written text i said yes um but uh, if you read the text in the original of the interview, um, and then you counterpose that to what he says in the context of the uniqueness, you know, of the universality of the West that you know, uh, countenances no, you know, no limit uh, and no contradiction, then you see, and especially when he uses the word mentalité. Uh, because the um, fair uh, told me, yeah, mentalité, which Foucault used to explain the difference between the Japanese and him. You know, he didn't understand them because of the mentalité, a uh, positive word in the, in the French, you know, language. He said his, you know, his vocabulary. Then I interviewed the translator who accompanied Foucault. In his during his 1978 trip, you know, to Japan, and he said, "Oh, absolutely! I even have the tape." He did say mentalité. So, mm-hmm. so you know, uh, I think he said something that um, I, I'm not responding to. So, Tunisia. To go back to Tunisia, so the problem is when he wanted to make sense of this difference, whether Tunisian, you know, Iranian or uh, Japanese, in, in Tunisia, he didn't see any difference. He even was telling his students, you know, how come you're all speaking French, you know, even though now the country is independent. That's a very important uh, observation, you know. So the continuation of French influence, but he was perfectly comfortable with continuing that, 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 that French you know, influence. He certainly was not teaching them anything revolutionary. He was teaching about Descartes, he was teaching about you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But so, it's, it's such an f- interesting word that he uses, the mentality, that this sort of, yeah, as you say, it's a positive term. So recognize that perhaps there's some kind of reasoning or minding that happening in that cultural other for him or what's the positivity about this time it's not positive that's the thing it's actually negative you know actually i i go into the etymology of it you know how it was used by the historical school of the annal um, at some point it was used to understand the way of thinking of people who lived in the 13th century 14th century 15th century and then with time uh, it became a shorthand for, for saying that, you know, it, 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 there are people who like think straight and those who, who's, who's, whose understanding of things is, is very different, you know, there's always this lingering connotation of negativity. So when you say, c'est leur mentalité, and it's just the way they think, you know, this is... Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dismissive it terms. could be dismissive, very yeah, dismissive right. Terms, actually. Uh, but, but it was an evolution in the meaning of it, you know, and actually uh, the uh, anthropologist uh, Lucien lévy uh is one of the first people to use it when he talked about la mentalité primitive, you know, the way of thinking of primitive people. 
So when you don't understand people and you think that they're acting in an odd way, it's so, so his apprehension, if you will, of others is mediated by uh, three terms. You know, one is colonialism. Uh, the other one is uh, revolution. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the, the third one is um, the way they, they think, right? So in, in, in Tunisia, Tunisia was a blank to him. He was projecting his conception of Carthage. He was in Greece, in Tunisia. He wasn't in Tunisia, he was in Greece. And he, was, um, he even took a, a, a drive with uh, De Fer, uh to Libya, you know, to Sirta, you know, to retrace the itinerary of Julian Black's, Black's, you know, novel, you know. And he said, what we were concerned about is, you know, how to understand the survival of Greek homosexual practices among homosexuals in Tunisia. That's what not the revolution of the students, you know, the Sino-Castrates, but, you know, the homosexual practices of the Tunisians uh, that resembled, that were the same as those that existed in Greece. I said, wait a second, that was a long time ago. And now, you know. Yeah, yeah there's so many uh, developments since the beginning of the, yeah. This is a tradition of talking about survivals of the past in the present. This is the tradition that people do today, you know, they do it when they, you know, study, you know, you know, illiterate, you know, societies, how they're reproducing, you know, the systematic, you know, and just traditions of, of the past, and they just get passed on, like, you know, unchanged. So he said to me, well, yeah, you're right, there have been changes, and the changes are, uh, hold on to your chair, uh, the rise of feminism and the rise of Islamism. So, so this changed, you know, the, you know, the the practices. But that's what they were looking into. Um, so colonialism, you know, for Foucault in in, um, in Tunisia explains the Tunisian situation. It was unproblematic. He had nothing. There was nothing, you know, fantastic you know, to to think about. He was he's still in French territory. It's assimilated, um, <clears throat> annihilated. Uh, uh, Orient uh, in France's backyard. Iran was a different story. And then he tells us it has never been colonized. So then it makes it interesting. And there was a revolution. So here's revolution and religion and um, colonization. So, uh, so then he became, I thought he was on the verge perhaps of breaking through, uh, but you know, he retracted. Well, he, you know, he said, you know, he retrenched and he said, oh, he assimilated the Iranian revolution, you know, to the uh, French revolution. He read the fervor, the religious fervor he saw in the revolution in Iran. He read it back into the French revolution and he said, actually, the French revolution was the first um, political spirituality, you know, a, a revolution 
because the individuals, you know, subjected themselves to this new thing, universal reason. Again, it's French, Western reason. So, so, and then when he goes to Japan, bingo, he has he had both reli- both religion, and you know everything else. You know, he tried to understand Zen Buddhism. But, you know, the interview that I had with both the Japanese and uh, uh, his interpreter was he was totally, you know, it was fun. You know, it was not like deepened. But again, as in Iran. He, he fathomed there was something that he really should understand that would come out of his cocoon. Uh, he invited um, Masao Maruyama to come and teach at the college, the, uh, college and also teach him about this enigma of Japan. Then uh, you know Maruyama, you know, got sick, and then the project you know, fell fell through. As his interpreter um, noted, uh, rightly so, uh, Foucault never talked about you know Zen Buddhism after that ever. It's just so fascinating because his analysis of the Western culture and Western uh, mind, reason, it's so enlightening in, in, in a sense of the showing that these problems that he has and the di- self-diagnosis is so well. But not transformative of his <laughs> of work. Yeah. Uh, but, but so perhaps like maybe this is slightly off the book, but maybe question to you as author of a book on Foucault and also your, your specialist in uh, sociology, right? Am I correct? Maybe the simple question is, how would you recommend students and young philosophers to read Foucault? Like, how should we read Foucault? And how did your engagement with Foucault shape your work as a sociologist? Because precisely your work is not trying to repeat the same problem as uh, Foucault did, for instance. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> good question uh, to answer. Yeah. If I have any recommendation to make, is read critically, uh, because I think the ideal graduate training is to tell students to have a critical perspective on what they read. Unfortunately, a critical perspective is sometimes associated with denigration and rejection. That's not my perspective. Um, you can use an author's concept only if you have, you know, understood what they mean. And, and only if you if they are better than an alternative. You can do that only by having a critical perspective. So critique is not denigration and it's not rejection. This is something that people really do not always understand. So that's one thing. The other thing is read him if you want to understand Western culture and how it perceives itself and how it sees itself as universal. If you want a recipe for studying your own culture, you're not going to get it. Foucault was <laughs> left-reading revolutionary. Mm-hmm. However, however uh, he does. He has a way of understanding political events, you know, from a literary perspective. If you look at his work on the state and all of that in his uh, 
you know, uh, <clears throat> lectures at the Collège de France, uh, it's interesting, but people see in it already political theory. I, I don't do that, but I find it interesting. So, so you do you do find uh, some uh, concepts that are resting. So he worked a lot on how on on uh, wordsmithing, how to create the right you know expression. So some of the concepts are really attractive. And, and, and some of the thoughts, too, when he says um, all knowledge is, um, is in, in fact, you know, unjust, um, studying others is committing a sort of injustice. Yes. So this is, right. like, this is wonderful. Fantastic. Right. Yeah. But then they, they have any notion of the others. Right. So, so there is no theology of liberation here. There is no manifesto of liberation. There is no... but there are some very exciting and inspiring concepts that one could run off with, provided that they understand them and define them. I just read a book where, you know, somebody was saying subjectification. What am I supposed to understand? You know, he read, he used it, but it was also translated as subjectivation. So which one is it? So you really have to understand this thing. So yes, um, sometimes when he's talking about the individual, you feel like he's talking about the universal individual, but in fact, he's talking about the Western individuals. But you can use that. You can use that. So that's my perspective. Fantastic. Um, unfortunately, we're coming closer to the end, but uh, I would like to s- still spend a little time to talk about um, the future. So this book was written in 2017, and since then, you have written multiple books. Uh, so perhaps, like, can you tell us a little bit about those books? Um, and I'm looking forward to interviewing you again over these books. But also, like, what are you working on uh, in conjunction with the past works of yours? Yeah, so in between, I, I did a second edition of my um, <clears throat> a book that somehow became a sort of reference. Uh, and that's um, <clears throat> um, The Eloquence of Silence. Algerian Women in Question. So I did the second edition of that. And then I wrote um, uh, Islamic Feminism and the Discourse of Post-Liberation. Uh, the subtitle is The Cultural Turn in Algeria. Um, and I have been, I published an article uh, with the Rosa Luxemburg uh, Foundation in, in Berlin um, on um, uh, historical revisionism of the Algerian War. Uh, there's a whole generation, young generation of French um, historians, you know, who are actually arguing that there was no revolution, that the Algerian War was simply a war of independence. There you go, that tradition. Uh, no specificity. Let's banalize it. Let's banalize it. And, and I'm writing a book on that, um, uh, expanding it, uh, but I'm doing it, you know, uh, quite slowly. Fantastic. Uh, so that's the current project that you're working on, this uh, revisionist history and, and, and how you try to counter that sort of a movement. Uh, wow, fantastic. Um, so good luck for the forthcoming books. And... Actually, thank you so much for talking with us today about this book. And it's been a really pleasure to talk about uh, this, really the conundrums and Foucault's treatment of Orient. 
Thank you so much, Marnia. Thank you for inviting me. And very nice meeting you. Thank you so much. This was our discussion with Marnia Lazarek, who is the author of Who Calls the Orient? The Conundrum, Cultural Difference from Tunisia to Japan. Thank you so much, everyone. See you next time.